Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. On today's episode, we are going to focus on all things bison. Bison as our national mammal. And yes, Every now and then, someone might mistakenly call them a buffalo. But for practical purposes, they're the same thing, and we can use those words interchangeably for the purpose of this podcast. So what we're going to do here today is we're going to dive into folklore, myths, mythology, and other fascinating stories about bison. We're going to decide what's fact versus fiction, what's reality versus fantasy, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. In order to do so, I have an assortment of guests on today's podcast, all taking on different questions. We're going to discuss topics like, do bison herds truly stampede into oncoming storms? Or is bison liver drizzled with bile and eaten fresh off an animal actually a culinary delicacy. We're going to have fun and explore other topics like what is a white bison and are they real? And we're going to also look at things like can bison defy ice age subthermal temperatures? Is there any cold that's cold enough to kill a bison? And then we're going to end the episode with looking at is there such thing as a 100% genetically pure bison? Now, we're going to dive into genetics. We're going to dive into religion. We're going to dive into ecology. This is a robust episode that is so fun and it's fast paced. And this is stuff that you truly cannot Google. I had to do some damn near investigative journalism to get to the bottom of these stories. So I hope you enjoy. I hope this makes you feel better connected to our beloved keystone species, national mammal, the architect of our most fertile food systems the planet has ever seen. And just to be clear, that is the North American bison. And if anything, I hope you can better connect and appreciate and learn from the wisdom of these Ice Age creatures. Enjoy the stories. My name is Bob Lee Wesley. I work for Turner Ranches. I manage Standing Butte Ranch in central South Dakota. We have about 2,000 head of bison on this ranch. Turner Ranches runs about 50,000 head of bison on 2 million acres from Montana down to New Mexico. Okay, people, if you didn't already pick up on this, Bob is the real damn deal. This guy has unbelievable experience, and the time he spent with massive herds of our national mammal exceeds most people on the face of the planet. You know, what I find most admiring about Bob is that through the collective management of that 2 million acres, they're overseeing a herd of 50,000 bison. Now that's well over 10% of all bison on the planet. So this is the man who's going to shed some light on our first story. So This story in particular is one that I will admit I have been propagating and I have been at the forefront of spreading it for the last, I'd say, 10 years. If you've been out to our ranch, if you've attended one of our public tours, if you've heard me speak in person, I've probably made reference to this story that bison as a species are unique in so many attributes, but one that stands clearly above the rest is that during a storm, a bison herd will actually run into the storm, charge into the storm for the matter of fact. And that behavior is dramatically different than what you might expect to see in other domesticated livestock species like cattle, sheep, and goats. 
In an oncoming storm, domesticated livestock will actually wait for the storm to hit them and then they'll run alongside it. They'll run with the storm. Now, while I spend as much time as I can with our herd of bison here at Rome Ranch, our landmass is significantly smaller, right? We're managing 900 acres. We move our bison daily and we contain them to smaller paddocks, which are typically two to three acres. So the bison don't have that freedom to run for miles and miles. So I haven't actually seen the behavior of a bison herd stampeding into a storm. It doesn't work in our ecological context. Now let's hear directly from Bob whether or not a bison will charge directly into an oncoming storm or if this is a tall tale and if fact checkers should be canceling me and I should be losing 10 years of credibility because I've been adamantly saying that a herd of bison will indeed charge into a storm. And now back to Bob Lee Wesley. No, absolutely. I've heard of it. Um, yeah, but it's, I guess I've never heard it saying that they run into the eye of the storm, but the the legend that bison travel into the storm and, and walk through the storm, that's the way I've heard the legend. Oh, shit. I have been likely exaggerating the difference between a trot, a walk, and a stampede. I think romantically, I would like to envision the bison herd running, but let's not get bogged down into the details here, people. We're still on track to finding out if a bison herd will move into the eye of an oncoming storm. Absolutely. See it basically on a daily basis. And uh, I'll tell you a really good story that highlights the point. And this is, it's true. Uh, it's not a myth. It's true. But I mean, I think we should back up and start with, if we just look at bison, physically, it makes sense that they do this. Look at the, the makeup of their body. They got that big, wide head that's as wide as the rest of their body, and it's covered in dense, dense, dense hair. And then they got the wide shoulders covered in dense hair, and then they taper off towards the back, and their, their butt's really narrow. It's narrower than the rest of their body, and it's not covered in as much wool and hair as the rest of it. So... You know, if you think about it, they were purpose built to face into a storm and take that wind and that cold and the snow and whatever's coming at them head on and uh, and really use their head to, to divert the wind around them. So, yeah, physiologically, it just makes complete sense that they're going to do that. And then behaviorally, man, we see it every day. Bison are probably the most wind-oriented animal I've ever had the pleasure of working with. If uh, we use them as a barometer quite often, even before a storm starts, you'll know which way the wind's going to come from because they will move within a pasture to get to 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 get facing into the wind. So you know if it's going to be a northwest wind, they'll show up that morning in the northwest corner of the pasture, and you're like, "Why are they here?" And then a few hours later, the wind starts blowing. And that's not even a big storm. That's just a regular wind. And we'll use that to our advantage a lot of times. If we need to move a herd, we'll kind of wait until the wind blows the right direction because they want to move into that wind so bad. In fact, if we got to move the opposite direction, it becomes more difficult task to get them to, to move from one pasture to the other again with the wind at their backs. So This is so freaking cool. So bison are physiologically, anatomically adapted to face a storm head on. I'd love if you could share with us a story or an example that stands out in your mind, something maybe dramatic, in which you've observed a bison herd moving into an oncoming storm. Oh, absolutely. So um, some of the listeners that live further north might remember the Atlas blizzard of 2013. It hit the Dakotas and Nebraska and Wyoming and Montana, hit the northern Great Plains really hard. It was I want to say it was right close to the end of October, 1st of November, and uh, it dumped in some areas 12 to 14 feet of snow in a one or two day period. It was absolutely devastating for the beef industry. Hundreds of thousands of head of beef cattle lost to that winter storm. Um, I happened to be in Nebraska at the time on our ranch, the McGinley Ranch in northern Nebraska, southern South Dakota. We were hit hard by that storm. 
are the storm come out of the northwest and our pasture rotation we had our bison in the basically the southeast corner of the ranch this is a big ranch it's about eighty thousand acres um when that storm hit when it finally cleared up enough uh that we could actually get out you know it lasted three or four days and and so it took us a while to get out the bison were no longer in the southeast corner of the ranch um where we found them was in the northwest corner of the ranch they had traveled into the wind went as far as they could go. They'd went through probably 10, 12 fences to get there. Um, and we found them happily grazing on ridgetops all over, all over that pasture. And as the snow melted, we started finding dead beef cattle from the neighbors that had drifted with the wind, with the storm, and they'd piled up in the bottom of draws. I'm sure they're seeking shelter out of the wind. And they piled up in there and they got snowed over and they actually cause of death was drowning. They drowned in the snow drifts. Whereas our bison, who were in the exact same place at the exact same time, um, put their heads to the wind, stood on the ridge tops where they wouldn't get snowed under, and they survived. We didn't lose a single head. There was about 5,000 head of bison in that herd, and we didn't lose a single one. So very dramatic. Um, just shows how perfectly adapted they are to the climate of the, the Great Plains. Okay, let's take a break here and recap. So it sounds like there is merit in this story, this legend that bison herds will go, will move directly and intentionally into a storm. While it's debatable if they will stampede, again, those are maybe some small details, it is confirmed that this legend has some substance behind it. 100%. And if we think about it, it makes such complete sense. If a storm is moving 10, 15 mile an hour to the southeast, you know, coming out of the northwest, moving to the southeast, let's say, and you travel against the storm, you're walking five mile an hour, it's moving 20, you're, you're going to get through the storm quicker rather than stand in one place or drift along with it. You'll stay in the storm for longer. So they're smart critters. This is just such an incredible act of deep, inherent wisdom. And I'm always looking into Mother Nature for lessons, ways that I can adopt her practices and her guidance and her wisdom and apply them to my everyday life. And now this is a powerful one that I have to imagine that as a human species, we can really learn something from this. Oh, I think it's it's the perfect wisdom for our everyday life or our business or whatever we're doing. You know, when trouble's coming your way, don't run from it. Just bow your head, grit your teeth, and face it head on, travel into it, get through it quicker that way. So the next time you find yourself faced with adversity, faced with a challenge, faced with something that scares you, be a bison, charge into that storm as fast as you can, head on, break through it, and you're going to get to the other side faster. Special thanks to my friend, Bob Wesley. Appreciate you sharing your wisdom, narrating that story. And people, this is your new mantra. This is your new battle cry. Charge into the storm like a bison. Now, our next story is going to be about raw bison liver, drizzled with bile, eaten fresh off a harvested animal, just like a Comanche Indian in the 1600s. And who better to talk to about this? Anthony Adam Gustin. Oh, AAG. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't know why I was expecting this, but I thought you were going to have some powerful warrior middle name. My, I've asked my parents. They have literally no meaning behind my name <laughs> at all. Zero. Yeah. I just thought it sounded nice. Um, what's what's yours? Uh, mine's I, My first name is actually James. Yeah. Mm. I go by James. James Taylor. James Taylor. My parents probably conceived me, you know, making love to James Taylor romance music in the 80s. I can see why you think it's romantic now, the names. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anthony Gustin is a friend. He's also the founder of Perfect Keto and Equip Foods. He started a farm recently east of Austin, Texas called Joyfield Farm. Now, he's also the host of the Natural State podcast and a internationally recognized leader in human health, soil systems, and specifically how agriculture impacts both. We got to dig into this, this myth or this story. I don't want to say it's a myth, but there is a 
story that's as old as time. I have read about it in the book Empire of the Summer Moon, which is about Texas Comanches. I've heard Joe Rogan romanticize this idea. I have read it in a book called Boy Captives, which again is about Comanche Indians, Apaches in central Texas. And the story goes that the best part of eating a freshly harvested bison is drizzling bile on the liver. Now, you, my friend, are one of the very few living people that have ever had this opportunity to do it. And I just want to know, first of all, what do you remember about that day? Well, it was a very intense bison harvest, for sure. I think it was actually the first one I've seen. I've seen other ones on video, but the first time in person. And you could feel the energy of the other bison when this one got shot. And I don't know if you remember, they started goring it and going crazy. You guys had to go in there. And was, that took some bravery, I think, because it was it was a wild sight to see. So after, I don't know if this happens every time, so if it does, let me know. But I was shocked at the amount of intensity. So Tim Kennedy was there, obviously perfect shot. And the bison that we're harvesting was, a, I think, a, it was like this, Extreme alpha male, right? Yep. So was it Cecil? No, it wasn't. Ce- it was Cecil's nemesis. Cecil's nemesis. All right. So Cecil's nemesis got dropped. And almost immediately, it was this instinctive drive from all the other bison to start circling and goring it. Yeah, that that was that's not normal. That was the first time and the only time that's ever happened. Wow. Of course, you were there. Um, and, and what we made of that is just the... Uh, the hierarchy of the bulls in the pack, it was almost like it was being reestablished in real time. And so in order for the other bulls to still have asserting dominance in their place, they they had to take shots at that animal. Hmm. And it was it was pretty brutal. It was like uh, National Geographic in real time. Yeah. And the energy from it, I think, was palpable. You could feel everybody around us, especially the kids, were all wondering like, Hey, what is going on here? Is, is this normal? And yeah. I've killed, I've killed animals before myself and I've never seen anything like this or felt the level of intensity that was brought by that whole interaction. Yeah, that was, that was very intense. So we, we got all the other dominant bulls off that bull and that bull did not suffer too. Like you said, Tim Kennedy. Yeah. yeah. By the time we heard that shot, that bull was, it lost its sentience. And so um, we got the dominant bulls off of it, and then we brought that bull back to our outdoor processing area, skinned it, eviscerated it. And then the first thing you know we did was we brought out the liver. It looked awesome. Everyone was admiring it. And then we just kind of volunteered, hey, who wants to get really weird today? And you wanted to get weird, you and a few other Always. people. Always. Why not? Yeah. Why not? That's what I have to say. And so um, our master field butcher, Jared you know, kind of just let him do his thing with his anatomy and identification. So he extracted uh, the bile. It was in a sack and then he drizzled it on the raw liver. Now, did the bile look like you imagined it was going to look? Yes, because I've seen bile before. Okay. So I've cut up a bunch of humans. Okay. Time to pause, add a little bit of color, some context. Uh, it's not every day that you hear someone just so nonchalantly say, yeah, I've cut up quite a bit of humans. I've, I've seen bile. I've seen gallbladders. I've seen bile sacks. So oh, no big deal, right? So Anthony Gustin is also a doctor of chiropractic medicine. And I have to assume that his reference to cutting apart human bodies was in the context of some postgraduate cadaver lab. Now, What I was familiar with when it comes to bile is more consistent with what I've seen field butchering turkeys, ducks, chickens, you know, geese, which is a a thick, very viscous green bile color. And that's what I expected to see when we opened up that bison. So, okay. I thought the bile was going to be green or dark. But I, and maybe I've, I don't know. I feel like we've all somehow repressed this memory, but I remember it being like, like light fluid, kind of yellowish, kind of brownish. Am I out of my mind or is that what you remember? No, it was kind of almost like diesel, but a little bit more color. 
I would say. Okay. Even though it has a like weird greenish tint, but it's translucent. Yes. That's what I remember. And but light. A little bit more. Yeah. And light, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was going to be uh, thick and kind of gooey. Like Nickelodeon sludge? Yeah. Like I <laughs> thought it was going to just come out slimy, uh, but it was very thin, very uh, liquid. And so the drizzle was more of a splash on the liver. And man, you already alluded to it's just saying diesel brought back some memories, mm-hmm. but Okay, so got it on there. Everyone, I, I feel like you too, like you being there, I felt like we were unbiased. I felt like if the bias was any direction, it was almost like, hell yeah, this is going to taste fucking awesome. And then you put it in your mouth and so did everyone else. And I remember everyone kind of like being quiet and looking at each other. And I don't know, what, what was going on in your mind when you first ate that? Well, I think in my mind... We can get to that, but I think I felt my beard grow thicker immediately. <laughs> I felt the hairs coming out of my cheek where they, they've never grown before, <laughs> which is the most important part. But <clears throat> no, it was, uh, I think, surprise of how intense it was. I've had weird animal parts, probably, probably all over the animal. And this is just the most bizarre taste that I've ever had. I would say. I don't, I don't know if you concur, but. I absolutely concur. I mean, I think everyone there wanted to love it. Just they wanted to, they loved the idea of it. They loved the, the traditional stories of it. And then being able to recreate that in a modern context, everyone was just like disappointed. I wasn't disappointed. Okay. I was thrilled. You were, okay. But you were just happy because you got to do it. But were you like, yum, I want another bite of this Delicious Comanche traditional cut. I wasn't seeking mouth pleasure. <laughs> so I think my expectations were it was going to be intense. I would have had more. I understand the significance now. I think if you are some savage Comanche clan and you have this, it's a bonding experience. Yeah. For sure. And I think it would we, probably weed out the week <laughs> to, to know you're doing it every single time and, and getting after it. Yeah. And it just wakes you up for sure. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of my, my two follow ups are, follow, you know, like thoughts afterwards were one, either this was just a joke that the Comanches played on the white man just to like laugh at them after they did the most nastiest thing ever and, and almost gagged. Or number two, it was like, it wasn't about the taste or the flavor, mm. but it was like that physical, visceral reaction that you grew facial hair from. Right. Like, yeah, your body kind of tingled. It, it vibrated. I mean, it was a powerful experience. So it's kind of like getting everyone hyped together. Yeah. And there's this thing called the liver high, where if you eat a raw liver, a lot of people, especially who don't do this, will feel a crazy boost of energy. And whether that's just adrenaline from eating an organ fresh out of an animal, or if it is the literal nutrients going straight to your body, I don't know. I don't really care, but it happens. I've seen it before and I've had that experience before. And I think this ratcheted that experience up probably tenfold. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I, after that experience, everyone went home and I remember I called our field butcher immediately, Jared, and and I was like, dude, are you sure you identified the bile sack? I, I think you might've put urine on the meat. I was pretty sure he put bison urine all over the meat. And he, and he's like, no, dude, I'm 100% certain that was that. So I don't know. Uh, the bladder would have been much larger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I guess, uh, if you could describe the flavor or I, I don't even know if that's possible, but you did mention gas diesel. Yeah. I feel like diesel was a, there was definitely a hint of diesel in there not like you drink diesel regularly. I smell it occasionally when I fill up my little five gallon tank, but <laughs> yeah, it was for sure a sharp pungent smell and taste that tastes like diesel or jet fuel, I would say. Okay. Flavor of jet fuel. Yum. Um, all right. So then just to wrap this up, do you think that, uh, this story, this legend has merit or, or is it just debunked? I buy it. You buy it. You're in green stamp. Wow. What a man. What about you? What's your, I don't know. Talking to you has really shifted how I (laughs) perceived it. I was going all on flavor and I might've been all going in the wrong direction. Flavor alone. I would give it a zero, 
but bonding experience and the physical high that I got from it, definitely a 10. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that. Thank you, my friend. You got it. Special thanks to Dr. Anthony Gustin, a true gastronomist and possibly the only living person who has both eaten raw monkey brains with the Hadza tribe of northern Tanzania and raw bison liver drizzled with bile with the Rome Ranch tribe in central Texas. My next story is going to explore the subthermal capacity. What are the actual physiological limits of the North American bison, a prehistoric ice age creature when it comes to maximum cold exposure? Specifically, is there a known physiological low that will cause a bison to freeze to death? All right, dude, I need like a better middle name after hearing Robbie. <laughs> I know, Casparis. He's got a good one, man. That's, that's legit. Uh, yeah. Howdy. My name is Jared Matthew Holmes. I'm, gonna, I'm an ecologist. Um, I'm the lead biologist at Origin Ranch in Dripping Springs, Texas. But really what I am is a nature connectivity specialist. I, my goal is to connect people to their landscapes um, however possible to get them just to enjoy being outside and appreciate the beauty of nature just a little bit more in their everyday life. All right, Jared. So one of the many benefits of raising bison is that they are super resilient to harsh environments and climates, especially when compared to domesticated livestock, right? Like cattle, sheep and goats, you know, in colder regions like the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountains, Canadian Rockies, it's often when a big front is coming in in the winter that cattle ranchers will round up their herds. They'll bring them into a barn or some kind of central location and the contrast of that is bison ranchers can leave their animals out in pasture and then get really, you know, the rancher will get really cozy inside, make a fire, um, eat some snacks, watch some Netflix, you know, just chilling for however many days until that storm blows over. And then in a few days, go back out there, check on the herd. And the herd is typically just thriving. You know, it was like probably just they felt like someone turned on the air conditioner. Now, here is the legend specifically that I want to address with you. So it's been said that as descendants of prehistoric ice age creatures, that there is no known subthermal condition or temperature that will actually kill a bison. Now, just kind of first reaction to that with your sniff test, what are you thinking? I mean, it kind of makes sense when you just, uh, I don't know, when you, when you think about their natural history and how things have kind of gone with them. I mean, like, for instance, let's, let's, let's take the birds, right? So there's a study in Nebraska that said birds that use bison fur in their um, nest boxes have a higher survivorship of those chicks. So, like, there's some weird insulating property going on, which isn't really that weird when you think about it. Because why do they have fur? Why do they evolve those super thick coats, right? So at first glance, like, it makes perfect, perfect sense to me. So do you own any like uh, merino wool or bison wool products, clothes, socks, shirts, underwear? All of the above. I am currently in a merino wool shirt with merino wear wool underwear with merino wool shorts and uh, socks. Oh, so, holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like okay. all in on I'm all in on the wow. merino wool. I mean, because think about the summertime, like it's going to be. 98 degrees outside here in uh in august and if i'm sweating it's just this the merino wool is going to dry out really quick but what about if you're in the arctic tundra would that merino wool serve your body and keep your core warm absolutely that's why they make the like the thinsulate um undercore layers out of merino wool um or a wool fabric or they try to make weird synthetic stuff do what nature's been really really good at for years but like, that's the whole thing. Like you can look at like Wim Hof, the dude climbed Everest in a, in a wool onesie. Hmm. Okay. What an intelligent fiber. I guess my last question before we get into some of this research is I've seen you time to time with some facial hair, yep. but do you think if you really grew out a big ass beard similar to a bison, that that would keep your face warm and like some tundra type 
environment? No, I've been working on this for uh, coming up on 40 years, and this is about as thick as it gets. So unfortunately, oh. my, my genetics aren't, uh, I am not my younger brother who, who could pass for, the, uh, for a Yeti, for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, I asked you to do a little bit of research to dig into some of the scientific literature, look into the archives, help shed some light on this rumor. Again, the rumor, the myth, the urban legend is that there's no known subthermal threshold that will actually drop the core temperature of a bison low enough to kill it. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Yeah. So what I found is this paper from, uh, well, it's basically two papers, one from late 60s, one from early 70s. And this group of ranchers out of Alberta um, hired some scientists and some veterinarians to study the, the winter bioenergetics. Okay. So if we break that bioenergetics down, it's like, what energy is needed to keep things alive? So think about calories, right? Calorie is just a measure of heat. So they wanted to go, all right, what animal does best in this environment and how low can their, their thermal threshold go? Basically, how cold tolerant are these things? So they took calves of um, heifers. They took the, the Scottish Highland. They took a yak. And they took, of course, the American bison. And then they built this like weird chamber. So imagine like a Connex box, a shipping box with a weird things hanging off of it and they can drop it all the way to negative 40 celsius which we have learned is negative 40 fahrenheit so that is cold and then they threw all these animals in there and they basically fed them and they studied the oxygen consumption they studied their their metabolic rate um, how fast they were burning through food and really what it came down to was Herefords don't take the cold very well. And when you look at it, like that's, you know, that's a very popular cattle breed here in North America. So if you're in Wyoming, that's one of those where the, the ranchers are going out to round up their cows, you know, making a bonfire if they can't bring them to shelter. And then the yaks and the Scottish Highlands were kind of these weird intermediates. They did a lot better in the cold than the heifers, but not even close to the bison. The bison freaking broke the machine. At negative 40, the bison were still chilling. They're like, yep, I can do this. They actually slow their metabolic rate down. It's a really weird thing. And they broke the machine. I, I just can't get over that. That's incredible. So the machine could only go as low as negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit or the same thing in Celsius. Yeah. And okay. So like when I think of bison and you've come out to the ranch, you've butchered probably more. Well, you feel butchered more bison than anyone I would self-proclaim in the Southwest United States, but you, you know, better than anyone, the animals are lean by nature inherently, naturally they're very lean. And so like, how could this animal going into winter, it's just solid muscle doesn't have that insulation, that layer of fat that so many other cold adapted animals have. Well, what the hell is keeping it warm in that chamber? Yeah. Well, think about how these, um, you know, when, when you get the fur off of it, so we'll, we'll go back and talk to you about the, the, the uh, density of the fur here in a second. But think about that, how thick that muscle mass is and how big they're like, they don't have a fatty brisket. Their brisket is super lean and that brisket keeps the core, you know, all warm and nice and toasty. And their, their internal organs, their heart is a little bit more in the center than any other animal. So they're essentially just preserving heat just from their internal anatomy being where it is. Now you wrap that thing in this amazing blanket um, of just, you know, thermal insulating density happiness. Um, they get very excited and they're just chill. And the fact that they can slow their respiratory rate to slow their heartbeat, it's kind of like almost reptilian in nature. Almost. That's bro science. But, <laughs> you know, like, like think about the ones that we do um, – when we field harvest uh, these bison in February, right? They're, that's when their, their coat is kind of at the densest. That's when the hides look really, really nice. By mid-March, they're already getting shaggy and that hair is starting to drop. And by April or May, they're basically in their summer coats again. And so they, they, they don't put all that energy into developing fat. They put all that energy in developing this dense coat. So they just know exactly what they're doing. Man, I think 
my my reaction to that research that you went over, you know, it's wild that they tested calves, so younger animals, because you have to even imagine that a more mature, uh, older, more dominant animal would have even a higher threshold. But I guess it makes sense because they, they probably wanted to know like the, the weakest link, the most vulnerable in the herd, which would have been a calf. So that's still just absolutely incredible. That'd be equivalent to, you know, like a human baby, right? Like, good luck. Those things would freeze to death if it <laughs> drops below 50 degrees, 40 degrees, probably. Well, when you think about like what they do in Siberia, I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of uh, the maternity ward, how they're outside in super cold temperatures in just a blanket. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. They're just trying to get every the get the babies used to being cold. And so, like when you think about in the animal world, a it's really good science to compare calves because it's more apples to apples. Like everything is still developing, so it's not like taking a, a four year old and comparing it across the board. Like a four year old yak might have a little bit more fat. Same thing with the Scottish Highland, um, and then the heifer. Of course, it's going to have a little more fat because it's just bred to be sick and put on weight like that. Um, but the bison are just going to be the bison. And so it made a lot of sense scientifically to do that. But it, the results are still like really interesting to to think about it. But the oxygen consumption is still like the cool thing I can't really wrap my head around. That's from the science side of things. To be able to slow your respiration down. Like, you know it. When we do cold plunges and stuff, what's the first thing we do? <gasps> We hyperventilate, yeah, hyperventilate and we fall into like this nice trance. We keep in, we're trying to keep our core warm by, by controlling our breathing. So, it, you know, it makes sense. It crosses. Man, that's a great analogy. I never thought about it like that. Next time we do cold plunges, we have to um, really visualize ourselves being a bison in the tundra. Probably uh, benefit. We, I don't know if we can get our cold plunge cold enough to, uh, to do that. One. <laughs> okay. Um, one last question for you. So you're a pretty adventurous guy. You've traveled quite a bit and gone to some pretty extreme environments. So if, if you were going to summit like a 20,000 foot mountain, we could just say Everest and you had the option of wearing a bison robe onesie or, you know, like the most uh, cutting edge technical gear derived from petrochemicals and all these synthetic fibers, which one would you choose, Jared? Oh, that's such a loaded question. I mean, obviously I'm going with the bison, even with the extra weight. Because A, like how cool is it going to be to walk up Everest, um, pass some of the the Sherpas and be like, hey, what's up? I'm part bison. Um, and then just be like really impressed. But also like how carnal is that? Like, you know, my goal is to be Jeremiah Johnson. And that's about as close as I think I can get. Well, this is just this is just blowing my mind, and this has been such a wonderful conversation. I guess if you could just bring it home, make it crystal clear: is this uh, a myth? Is this truth? Can bison do they have a known subthermal temperature that will kill them? What's the verdict? The verdict is there is no known temperature, at least not in the literature. And when you think about the range of the North American bison, they're all the way up in the Arctic Circle sometimes. So. That's pretty cold, if you ask me. Oh, Jared, my man. Thank you for helping to fact check this story in being a beacon of light in a winter storm. Now, if you want to see Jared in action and talk to him more about thermogenesis in bison, come to one of our bison field harvest out at Rome Ranch. He is our field butcher extraordinaire. Now, our next story is perfect for the bison lover because we're going to look at one of the greatest bison legends of all time which is the story of the white bison the return of the white buffalo now what is a white bison how do bisons develop albinism and what's the actual prevalence of a 100% pure white bison this story is so interesting and it's as old as time itself and i'm bringing in the big guns for the story so here we go. So my name is Jim Durr. I am a professor in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Texas A&M University. I uh, got a PhD in genetics, and mainly what I do for a living is teach genetics to pre-vet and pre-med students and conduct population and conservation genetics research, primarily with wildlife. Um, here in the United States, um, Central America, 
and Africa. All right, Dr. Durr. So the legend of the white buffalo has deep cultural significance to Native American communities across North America, right? The birth of a white buffalo calf was considered one of the most sacred living acts that could ever happen on earth. It was an experience that was an omen of good times to come. Some Native American tribes believed that the birth of a white bison calf was this indication that life's sacred loop was about to begin or reset. Now, when I look up the data behind this, the National Bison Association indicates that only one out of every 10 million bison are born white. We have less than 500,000 bison in North America, so by those odds, there should be zero or maybe one or maybe two, right? Um, But I know for a fact that in Texas alone, there's hundreds of white bison. And when you extrapolate that and zoom out, in America, there's thousands of white bison. So are those animals true white bison or are we talking about something else? Well, that's a very good question and it confuses a lot of people. And uh, the bottom line is we know a lot about the genetics of coat color in mammals. Okay, so the science knows a lot about it. And we basically know the genes and we know the gene action and how it works in various biochemical pathways to lead to different coat color patterns. And so in dogs and horses and cattle and basically every other mammal that you're you're interested in, we we as a science have done a lot of research looking at co-color genetics and the true albino North American bison I'm talking about an animal that has white coat color has no pigment in its nose no pigment in its lips no pigment around its eyes and it has that traditional albino looking red eye those animals, I completely agree with the National Bison Association, are extremely rare. You just simply don't see those very much. And I've been lucky enough to get DNA samples from five or six animals that I believe were true albinos. So if the natural occurrence of white bison is super rare, then why are we seeing so many albino bison popping up all over America. But there's also a lot of white bison out there that aren't true albinos. And there's more than one way. I guess not all white bison are created the same. And there's more than one way to end up with a bison that's white. And one way to do it is to cross a bison with a domestic cattle breed that's white. And the most common one would be with Charlet cattle. Now, a Charlet cow is a breed that originates from France. It's a beef cow. And they're beautiful creatures. They're all white. They have pink noses. I've seen them kind of with shaggy hair. I've seen them with pretty slick, tight, short hair. And they look nothing like a bison. So when you breed a Charlotte cow with a North American bison, what are the outcomes? I mean, is it safe to assume that that first generation offspring is going to look like a white bison? Well, if you look at enough bison, you can look at one of these animals and say, you know what? That animal doesn't look typically like a bison would look, even regardless of the coat color. And um, it just kind of looks different. And what we know about the gene that's involved in white coat color in Charlet cattle is that it's a, it's a different gene than the gene that typically causes albinism. It simply causes white coat color. That gene in Charlotte cattle and also in bison is called incompletely dominant. So that if an animal has, if it's a first generation hybrid between a bison and a Charlotte cattle, it will be heterozygous for that um, gene and it will be tan in color. So it's not truly white, it's tan. 
and it's got certainly pigmented eyes, pigmented nose, and the, but however, you can cross those together. If you cross two of those first generation hybrids together, 25% of the time, you'll produce an, an offspring that is homozygous for the charlet form of that gene. Those animals are truly white. Would be a second generation hybrid. They're truly white, but they still have pigmented eyes and a pigmented nose. All right. So can you please elaborate a little bit on what you mean by pigmented eyes and the pigmented nose of these hybrid bison? Because it seems like this is a point of differentiation, which someone could distinguish an actual 100% genetically pure albino bison versus a Charlet cattle bison hybrid. So normally, if you just look at a normal bison, normal bison with coat color, their nose around their eyes and their lips are going to be dark or in many, many cases are going to be black. So they have a lot of, of melanin in those skin cells and it produces that dark color. In an animal that's an albino, though, they that biochemical pathway leading to melanin production does not work because of this mutation that occurs in a particular gene. And so they cannot produce melanin and they can't produce color in their skin or their hair. Okay, there you have it. So like our listeners are going to be the most educated fact checkers for albino bison. So if if a bison, when you're looking at it, if it has the absence of pigment in its nose, in its eyes, then that's probably a freaking real deal albino bison. But if it has color pigment, so dark nose or dark um, skin around the eyes, then we can call bullshit on those. So we set out to use genomics to try to find the mutation in these animals that cause them to be albinos. And we had just recently finished sequencing the genomes of a whole lot of different bison, including a handful of animals that were true albinos. And I wanted to figure out a way so that we could show you can use a genome to find mutations in bison that have some kind of significance. And the easiest one to look for, because all bison kind of look the same, so the easiest one to look for was albinism because anybody can look at that albino bison and say that one is different than regular bison. And so we sequenced these albinos, sequenced their genome, and we started looking at all of the genes that were involved in albinism in other mammals. And there's one gene, the gene that um, we looked at is called tyrosinase. And the tyrosinase gene has a mutation in it that causes cattle to be albinos. And so we looked for that mutation first, and we did not find that in bison. So we thought, well, it's not the same mutation that causes albinism in cattle. And we kept looking, and we kept comparing the bison that were albinos to the bison that were were not albinos. And all of a sudden, we found a mutation in this gene. And when we looked at this mutation carefully, we saw that a couple of things about it were very, very interesting. First and foremost, this single gene mutation causes an amino acid replacement in the protein that's made from that gene, and it causes that gene to not be able to function. So in genetics, we call that a loss of function mutation. And a loss of function mutation means that that enzyme can no longer work correctly. Well, thank you, Dr. Durr, for helping us to decode the genetics behind an albino bison. And this stuff is mind-blowing. And it's actually a little frustrating because if, say, one out of every 10 million bison are born albino, you know, in the natural setting, then when bison were peaking in the population of 60 million animals in North America, that means there was only six albino bisons on the planet. And so, you know, the National Bison Association, the Texas Bison Association, it is in our bylaws as members of these organizations. We are not allowed to breed cattle with bison. 
It is forbidden. It is frowned upon. And so if you guys are out there and you're meeting people who are promoting and marketing and making money by exploiting and crossbreeding these beautiful, iconic North American soil builders that we adoringly refer to as our national mammal, please call those people out. Tell them that's not cool. Let them know that you know that they're full of shit because you listen to Dr. Durr right here on Where Hope Grows. And you can also let them know that you're not cool with bison being exploited. Thanks again to Dr. Durr. This research has yet to be published. They're in the current process of submitting it to different journals. And I can't wait for it to go out in the world. But you heard it first here, people. Now, our next story is perhaps our most polarizing. This is a heated debate amongst bison ranchers, amongst conservationists, within the National Parks Program. And as a matter of fact, I got an email three days ago. These types of emails aren't uncommon, but a consumer reached out and asked if our bison were 100% genetically pure bison or if the bison that we sold from the ranch, that we sold through force of nature, was somehow crossbred with cattle genetics or had cattle integration within the DNA of the bison. So I had to get Bob Lee Wesley back to shed some light on this topic. Now, is there such thing as a 100% genetically pure North American bison? So Bob, the story goes that you know, when the bison population historically was brought down from that 40 to 60 million number back down just to the few hundreds of animals that there was the genetic bottleneck and that, you know, in order to breed the herd, there was some cattle genetics interbred or mixed in for that needed diversity. And what I'm hearing, what people talk about in the bison industry, consumers are having this discourse too, and it's it's a hot topic. It's very polarizing. But the story goes that there still is 100% intact, pure genetic bison. Um, and then there's this recognized other subset of bison that are different. And first of all, is this a story that, that you're familiar with or, or that you've had to educate people on? Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, it is a polarizing topic, especially within the bison industry, um, whether or not people are raising genetically pure bison or if there's cattle crossbreeding in there. And it, it's, you know, a lot of folks, I get where where people are concerned about it. There are still a few folks out there that are intentionally crossing bison to beef cattle. Um it doesn't work well and not a lot of people do it. And, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about those recent crossbreds. What we're talking about is from way back in around the bottleneck time, around the time of saving the bison, you know, was there some cattle genes mixed into the herds and, and have those crossbreds survived and reproduced through time? Is that, that that's what you're talking about, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Let's dig into that and, and find out, is there truth to that? Is there such thing as a 100% pure genetic bison as you would expect, you know, in the 1600s or 1700s? Yeah. So short answer is no, there isn't. Um, but let's back up just a little bit. So, you know, we got to think of the history of bison and, and why they're still here. Um, they, like you mentioned, they were just about extinct, and and the credit for saving the species goes 100% to beef cattle ranchers back in the 1800s. There was several, I think there was six or seven herds of bison that were saved on the plains and by cattle ranchers for various reasons, um, but when when they saved these herds and they brought them onto their cattle ranch, they were either intentionally crossbred to try to make a, a better species, or they were just run in common with beef cattle and in an unintentional crossbreeding occurred. So it makes complete sense that there would be cattle genes in at least part of the bison. Um, 
and it was such a small number that we started with uh, that it would also make sense that that those genes would still be around today. So it's not out of the question um, that there is cattle integration. The big question was, was there any herds that that didn't get in some way crossbred and or was there any animals where that lineage survived? And the, the answer is no. Um, there was a recent paper that just come out uh, at a Texas A&M, Dr. Sam Stroop wrote it, and they did whole genome sequencing of a bunch of bison to try to represent the kind of the foundation herds and the, the maternal lineages uh, from the foundation herds, as well as some uh, bison that come out of, you know, bones and whatnot that come out of museums that were from 1850-ish era. Um, and when they when they sequenced the whole genome, they found that every bison they looked at had areas of cattle integration. Um, very small areas in a lot of them. So we're not talking about recent hybridization. We're talking about this historical stuff. Um, so it kind of... That paper rocked the bison industry a little bit, um, and especially rocked the folks in the park service. Uh, it's there's always a debate on, especially from the conservation biology side of if we're if we're trying to save a species, should that species be 100% pure, or are we going to accept a little bit of hybridization in there? And uh, you know, this paper just recently come out within the last six months. And so there's still a lot of discussion about it and a, a lot of spitting and fighting about it. But but the answer is, is at least with the way the science is today, there probably is no 100 percent pure bison wandering around. Wow. Just wow. So do you think if, you know, a Comanche Indian or another Plains tribe was hunting bison in the 1600s and they harvested a modern bison. Do you think that they would be able to decipher a difference, you know, anything aesthetically or phenotypically that would indicate that this is not a bison that they were used to? You know, I don't think so. Um, back when folks were intentionally crossbreeding bison, what they found was if you if you crossbred them once, and when you when you cross a beef cattle and a bison, they make a funny looking critter. It, they're very phenotypically distinct. Um, but then if you go back to to crossing them back to bison, after about five or six generations, they look, smell, sound, and taste exactly like a, a regular bison would. So. Um, the the crossbreeding or the the genetic integration that we're talking about is from 10, 12 generations ago, somewhere between eight and 12 generations ago. And so, no, they they look like a bison. They act like a bison. They taste like a bison. Um, as far as I'm concerned, they are a bison. Now, this starts to tap into a whole different conversation, which is this idea that everything is changing Nature is always evolving, right? You are changing. I am changing. The climate is changing. The vegetation that's native to our habitat is changing. As a species, we romantically think about the past as the standard. It's something that we should strive to get back to. It somehow nature had figured it out and it's perfect wisdom. However, the reality is we'll never be able to reverse the hands of the clock. Our ecosystem is forever changed, and this example of bison is just one of many. This news does weigh heavy on my heart. It makes me feel sad, sad for the historical lineage and the genetics of the North American bison as a species, but I cannot let that disappointment and that sorrow cloud my judgment and take away from the fact that this species is one of the most resilient, adaptable animals in the history of the planet. They defied all odds. They were practically extinct, wiped off the face of the planet forever. And somehow, they have recovered. They've rebound. This is the potential, the capacity 
of our species to coexist and to co-create, collaborate with nature. I choose to celebrate the modern iteration of a bison as just that, the evolution of a bison. I'd like to add this, you know, I think the reason that that there is a debate out there and it's a real it's a legitimate reason we we value bison for the behaviors and attributes that bison bring to the table. They're they're evolved in this natural environment. They're fit to the the environment they live in. Um, and if we crossbreed them with an animal that isn't fit to this environment, they probably won't perform as well. They won't have as good of pregnancy rates. They won't behave in the ways that that fit them within the ecosystem. And so people are concerned. We don't want a bunch of cattle genes that will change the critter. But if we think about the crossbreeding that took place in the 1800s, um, anything that passed on genetics that were not fit to the environment, over the last 100 to 150 years, those those genetics have been lost out. If they didn't fit the environment, wouldn't allow that bison to be productive and survive, they're gone. So the cattle genetics that are left are probably not inhibiting the ability of bison to do the awesome things that bison do. Wow. This is just an incredible story because truthfully, going into this, I had assumed that there were genetically pure, intact bison herds in North America. I was always a little bit shy to test our own bison herd here at Rome Ranch because a part of me just had a feeling that there had to have been cattle in aggression. So upon digging a little bit deeper into this topic, when we talk about cattle genetics in modern day bison, we're talking about less than 2% of the entire genome of that bison has cattle in aggression. So this is a very small percent. These are very much bison that we're still talking about here. And it's also important to recognize that there has been documented examples of wildlife, closely related species of wildlife hybridization that has occurred naturally over time. These examples include the intergression of coyotes and eastern wolves, the breeding of grizzlies and polar bears, as well as bobcats and Canadian lynx. So, just like you and me, just like the national mammal of North America, the bison, just like the Great Plains and the grassland ecosystems that inhabit our great nation, just like the woodland forest, everything is changing. That seems to be a constant in Mother Nature's image. And when you make peace with that change, you really start to appreciate this moment in time, the people who are in our lives, the animals who grace our land, and the ecosystems that define the beauty of our country. Now, I want to thank Bob Wesley for narrating a second story. That guy is such a stud. I had to have him contribute once again. And full circle, the research that Bob cited here that was Dr. Durr at Texas A&M. So I think I got some pretty stacked guests this episode, and I hope you enjoyed the bison legends, lores, and mythology that contribute to the definition of North America's national mammal, the greatest land mammal since the dawn of time. Okay, that was a little dramatic, but I might be a little biased since I'm a bison rancher. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope to do this again because it was too much fun. And until next time, farewell, my friends. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, head over to forceofnature.com and have regeneratively sourced bison shipped to your door. Now I'm going to go out there and be a little provocative. If you've never had bison before, then you're probably not a patriot proud to be American because bison is our national mammal. So we should be celebrating it by consuming bison. We get to incentivize more ranchers to raise bison. We can grow the herd of bison in North America back to a million animals. 
and force of nature is a catalyst for creating that massive change at scale, having more of these beautiful, iconic keystone species gracing the lands that say symbiotically created for the last millennia. So head over to forceofnature.com and be American. Get patriotic. I forgive you if you've never had bison, but this is your one chance to fix that. So it's forceofnature.com. So lastly, since we're talking about being patriotic and standing for something that you're proud of, have you rated this podcast? Have you even commented on it? Have you shared it with your friends? If not, I invite you to do that immediately. We all need a little feedback and a little validation from time to time just to make sure we're on track and our life's path is in the right direction and the momentum is at the right speed. So please share this with your friends, leave us a review, give us five stars. That's what's up. That's what keeps us hyped and motivated. But you know what? If you don't, I'm still going hard because this is my calling. And as a takeaway, until next time, I challenge you to embody the spirit of a bison stampeding into a storm or in Bob's context, walking into a storm, facing your fears head on, blasting through them, getting through that moment of stress, breaking through the other side quicker and living your best bison life. Until next time, my herd mates, my cows, my heifers, my yearlings, my calves, and where are my bulls at? Farewell, friends.